Welcome to Failed Back Surgery Syndrome. Our faculty today is Dr. Jay Joshi. Please help me welcome Dr. Joshi. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Full house. This is really nice. Um, it's always nice to be in the beginning. You know, last year, I had, uh, I had five presentations, but the last presentation was the last presentation of Pain Week. It was on a Saturday. And, um, and we, didn't, we didn't have this kind of a turnout, so, uh, so, so nice to see everyone here. Uh, we're going to be talking about failed back surgery syndrome today. How many of you have heard of failed back surgery syndrome before? All right, easier question. How many of you have not heard of failed back surgery syndrome before? So just about one or two. So, um, you know, there, there are audio recordings done of, of these presentations. So in case anyone's listening to the audio recordings, we have probably at least 100 people here maybe, and, and maybe about a couple have not heard about it. So uh, everyone's heard of failed back surgery syndrome. How many here have not had a patient or a relative or a loved one uh, suffer from failed back surgery syndrome after they've had back surgery? All right, how many have had you know, someone they know, a patient. So again, almost everybody. So this is a, this is a, a really a, a very important topic, a big topic, uh, a topic that is somewhat misunderstood in the sense that we get conflicting data and conflicting stories about what is failed back sur surgery syndrome, how often does it occur, and how severe is it, and how do you diagnose it, how do you manage it. So those are some of the goals of today. I have no disclosures for this presentation. We have certain objectives that we want to make sure that we meet today. Number one, we want to explain how to recognize failed back surgery syndrome. Two, we want to define the etiology of failed back surgery syndrome. Three, we want to describe how to integrate various diagnostic tools so we can diagnose failed back surgery syndrome. And finally, discuss how we can manage failed back surgery syndrome. It is something that is manageable and that should be managed properly so we don't end up in that, that black hole of, of, of pain where patients continue to get worse and worse. So a little introduction on failed back surgery syndrome. You know, as we all know, lower back pain is a major problem in America, but it's not just an American problem. This is an international problem. About 10% of the global population has lower back pain. And it is the number one reason for disability. So something that obviously is, is common, and all of us are going to experience lower back pain at some point in our lives if if, if you haven't already. And, and not just lower back pain, but chronic lower back pain. So the statistics are that about 85% of us are going to have some type of chronic lower back pain at some point in our lives. So the prevalence of lower back pain is, is massive. And it's something that is uh, uh, not a problem that's going to get any better as we uh, move on in our course in humanity. As we all know, we used to have labor jobs, industrial jobs. Lower back pain was a problem because of our our industrial workforce. Now we have more technology jobs, jobs where we're sitting down at home or at work all day long. And that's not going to do anyone any favors when it comes to lower back pain because now we have just an, an incredible amount of, of um, uh, muscle atrophy and degeneration of muscle. The core muscles are really not very strong. So we're going to see even more, even more lower back pain as time goes on. So looking back at some of the data that we see from the previous decade, so from 1998 to 2008, uh, some of the data shows us that with, lower, with lumbar fusions, we saw a 170% increase in lumbar fusions that were done from 1998 to 2008. 
So that equates to about 77,000 fusions in 1998 to 210,000 lumbar fusions that were done in 2008. During that same period, laminectomies, which are less invasive, as you all know, than, than a lumbar fusion, uh, increased by 11%, so it went up from, from 92,000 to about 107,000 patients. So sometimes those surgeries provided relief, and sometimes they didn't provide relief, or the patient's pain relief was temporary, and, and it came back. When the patient's pain comes back, or it's temporary, or they're, you know, they, they end up having lower back pain afterwards, a lot of people know that as failed back surgery syndrome. The official definition of failed back surgery syndrome is lumbar spinal pain of unknown origin, either persisting despite surgical intervention or appearing after surgical intervention for spinal pain, originally in the same topogra topographical area. Okay? So putting that in simple terms, the patient ends up having the same or more pain in the same area. Now, some people define failback surgery syndrome as, uh, you know, from a chronological standpoint, as a year or more later. And other people don't have that definition. Um, but either way, the one thing that is definitely true is the same pain in the same location after some type of fusion surgery or some type of surgical intervention on the lower back. So minimizing the likelihood of failback surgery syndrome is key. You don't want to just go into it blindly and and uh, uh, not take certain steps before surgery occurs. So that's dependent on a few different things, and those things uh, revolve around a multidisciplinary approach to the patient's pain before surgery. Patients with failed back surgery syndrome have usually had one or more surgical interventions that have failed to treat the pain. And in this situation, we're talking about surgical interventions. Injections do not count as surgical interventions. The rate or the incidence of failed back surgery syndrome is between 20 to 40 percent. So let me repeat that. The rate of failed back surgery syndrome is between 20 to 40 percent. That equates to about somewhere between one to two out of every five patients will have failed back surgery syndrome. Now that's the real data, and I think that's important to, to sort of spend a minute digesting that. Let that absorb into your minds, because I can tell you for, for, for a fact that some of the surgeons in our area, I'm in the Chicago area, and I can tell you for a fact that I've met surgeons who honestly believe 100% of their patients do great after fusion surgery. They honestly believe that, they, that their patients have zero failed back surgery syndrome. They honestly believe that it is completely an operator-dependent phenomenon or that the patients are lying and faking it and are a bunch of drug addicts. I, 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 you know, raise a hand. How many of, of you have encountered that sentiment amongst the surgical community? And by the way, I'm not trying to you know, rip on surgeons, but they're not all like this. But, um, so about 50% of the audience has, has, has you know, met someone or met a surgeon or, or met a patient who has been told by a surgeon that, hey, if I do surgery, you will not have any more pain. Uh, it's not that simple. I mean, if, in the best of hands, okay, we, we might see maybe a 20% failback surgery syndrome rate. In the worst of hands, maybe we're going to see a 100% failback surgery syndrome rate, uh, but it's not a 0%. And that's because nature happens, okay? People do something called healing after surgery. And how, does, how do people heal after surgery? I heard it, um, scar tissue, right? That's how you heal. You heal by scarring. Uh, now, there are some ways to prevent 
uh, or minimize the, the amount of scarring that will occur, and we'll talk about that at the very end. Uh, but they heal by scarring. So inherently, you're going to scar and you're going to develop this mass of, of gumbled up tissue right where the surgery occurred. Now, how do you think that that's going to be painless in 100% of patients? So it's possible. <clears throat> so a review of discectomies for lumbar disc herniation in patients under the age of 70 showed that about 36% of those patients ended up with FBSS. FBSS was present in almost 30% of patients in a prospective study where they looked at patients who underwent laminectomies with or without fusion. So again, failback surgery syndrome is not always for fusions. It can be for minimally invasive things like laminectomies. Anytime the patient's back or their tissues are exposed to air, you're going to develop scarring. That's just how it works. So any of these procedures where uh, you're exposed to that, that air or that scarring, and especially procedures where there is um, anatomical change or destruction, if you will, you're going to have some element of scarring. So improved outcomes are completely dependent, as we said before, on the multimodal approach that we used beforehand, as well as the comprehensive approach that the surgeon uses uh, before surgery. And that includes the ability to effectively diagnose, manage, and treat the patients beforehand and afterwards after they have FBSS. So the etiology of failed back surgery syndrome is dependent on five major criteria. And all of these things need to be addressed before surgery occurs to minimize the risk of failed back surgery syndrome. Number one, accuracy of the diagnosis. I can't tell you how much of a problem this still is. You know, just because you have back pain doesn't mean you need a surgery. Just because you have back pain doesn't mean that you have a problem at L4, L5, or L5S1, although those are the most common places that people will have back pain. But even that... What does that mean, L4, L5, L5, S1? There are many things and many structures that exist in that area. You know, that's like giving someone geographical coordinates. Great, I know what subdivision you live in. That doesn't tell me anything. I know what house you live in. It still doesn't tell me what the problem is with your house. And it's the same issue here. So sometimes people will say, well, I got an MRI, and it shows some degeneration of L4, L5, therefore I'm going to have fusion at that area. That's silly. MRIs are not diagnostic tools. They are screening tools. They are tools to be used as clues in your differential diagnosis, those are tools to be used as a detective. You use tools to figure out who the suspect is, who the, you know, the suspect is and who, you know, who the guilty person is, right? And MRIs are pictures. They, they, you should be used, uh, they should be used along with other you know, history, physical, and, and tests, other tests to diagnose the patient correctly. So accuracy of diagnosis. That is still probably, I would say, the number one problem with, with uh, uh, failed surgeries and failed back surgery syndrome is the diagnosis wasn't... Um, wasn't uh, very accurate. Number two, behavioral status of the patient. We'll get into that in just a minute. Uh, number three, the medical status. How healthy is the patient? How unhealthy is the patient? How fit is the patient for surgery? Number four, psychological factors. Uh, we'll get into that in a little more detail in, in just a little bit. And number five, socioeconomic factors. Um, and, uh, and that doesn't just include you know, how rich or poor someone is. Uh, that includes uh, a, a other factors that are a lot more complex that we'll get to in just a second. The etiology of FBSS and the accuracy of your diagnosis um, can account for up, up to 58% of FBSS. So again, more than half of FBSS is from you know, bad diagnoses, inaccurate diagnoses. Multiple studies have shown that back pain that's caused by foraminal stenosis is associated with greater rates of failed back surgery syndrome. We've also seen that entrapment of the superior cluneal nerve is often overlooked as a diagnosis for patients that present with lower back pain, either before or after surgery. Does anyone know, just to take a little side note here, how many people are familiar with the cluneal nerve? 
I don't know if that's half. That's I think that's under half. Half, right? Or how many people are not? How many people here are not familiar with Quinn Eleanor? All right, so definitely less than half. So definitely less than half. And, and let's spend a second to talk about the clunial nerve. The clunial nerve um, is uh, a uh, sensory branch that um, um, traverses the, the um, iliac crest, the iliac spine. And typically when patients are having fusion surgery, especially if they have bone harvesting fusion sur surgery, a lot of that bone is harvested from that area. And in many situations, the clineal nerve is injured or damaged or, or um, you know, uh, cut through during those surgeries. Uh, and if it's not, at least the bone is. The bone that the clineal nerve innervates is damaged. So either way, the clineal nerve is going to transmit pain. So a lot of times those patients will say, hey, my back still hurts, um, and, and the surgery may have been just fine. You know, the outcomes may be just fine. In fact, the scarring around the surgery may be just fine but the clineal nerve is injured. And so we have this failback surgery syndrome because of clineal nerve pain. Um, and as we see here, we see, you know, a hundred of the finest in America here, and more than half of you don't know about this. Uh, so obviously it's going to go misdiagnosed. So something important to keep in the back of your minds next time you see a patient uh, with uh, both pain before surgery, but especially after surgery, do they have clineal nerve pain? Diagnostic injections can further clarify the source of pain, whether it's coming from the back or the leg. And that includes clineal nerve. So we can do things like clineal nerve blocks. We can do things like selective nerve root blocks and, and uh, uh, blocks of various nerves, which we'll get into in just a, a few minutes when we talk about diagnosis. Behavioral factors can act um, and affect the perioperative outcome as well. And some of those behavioral factors include how does the patient sort of behave you know, and live their life. Uh, one of the... Uh, 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 most common things that we see are, are behavioral uh, um, or lack of behavioral modification, such as uh, the lack of smoking cessation. So there was a study that looked about 4,500 patients who had spine surgery, and, it, and we found that smokers had um, uh, used more analgesics, had worsened walking ability, had inferior overall quality of life two years after their surgery compared to non-smokers. And I think we all know this. I think we all know smoking affects healing. It affects outcomes. It affects um, your, your you know, blood flow within capillaries. We know that smoking affects disc degeneration. So this is not really a surprising thing, but obviously, as we know, a lot of times we need hard data, and we have hard data to, to show that. So there's anecdotal data, and there's hard data. Smoking is also associated with an increased risk or increased rate of perioperative uh, complications that includes far more than just the fact that they don't heal well and they have more pain, but obviously we're talking about cardiovascular issues, um, pulmonary issues, etc. So the emphasis should be looked at multiple different facets of life, including maintenance of, of body habitus, you know, the behavioral choices they make. Are they, are they smoking a lot? Are they drinking a lot? Are they using a lot of various drugs, uh, illicit especially? And that affects, you know, what your outcomes are going to be. Psychological factors also need to be used when you're pre-oping patients before surgery. How many times is that done by the surgeon? I could tell you, honestly, I don't know a single surgeon that we work with who looks at the psyche of the patient, unless they're totally, I mean, unless it's obvious the person's, you know, got, got major issues. But things like anxiety, depression, you know, those things are not addressed by the surgical team before surgery. With another show of hands, I would love to see how many of, sur how many of the surgeons that you guys have seen or work with address anxiety, depression, 
you know, before they operate on a patient. Three hands. Three hands. I'd love to find out who those surgeons are. <laughs> are they really surgeons? Seriously? Okay. Um, I'd love to get their names. I'll have patients fly and go see them. Uh, it's, a, it's a major issue. You know, anxiety, depression, uh, and, and other centrally mediated psychological conditions are not things that should be ignored. Multiple studies have demonstrated that depression is one of the strongest prognostic indicators of a negative outcome after spinal surgery. So you can have the diagnosis just right, but if that person has central issues, and I, I, I actually say that if that person has any type of central sensitization, which you know, we'll see in this next sentence where we see that depressed patients generally feel more pain, more weakness, and it's all a result of their central sensitization. So central hyperamplification. These are conditions where the brain perceives problems when those problems either don't exist or those problems minimally exist, but the brain perceives them as more. And as far as the patient's concerned, those are real problems. So their outcomes are going to get affected by that. Return to work severely gets affected when patients have things like anxiety, depression, and other central pain conditions. So if you don't address these things, you're just setting yourself up for a failed outcome, you know, because you're not really addressing the major issue. I mean, I could go as far as to say, you know, especially with some of the very, very severe central pain conditions that we see, like CRPS or fibromyalgia, where in many situations we don't have a peripheral problem. We, we have 100% of a central problem. And it's not something that's conscious. It's not something a patient can, can consciously change. As far as the patient is concerned, their limb, their body part uh, uh, really hurts them. So now if you start operating on those limbs or body parts that are effectively normal, what do you think is going to happen? You've actually caused damage, and you haven't addressed the central problem. So, so, the, so depression, anxiety, and other psychological and social factors need to be used to assess if the patient is a good candidate for spinal surgery. As a result, the United States Preventative Task Service Task Force has recommended that pre-surgical psychological screening be used uh, always. And I can tell you that that's, uh, I don't see that happening. And maybe only three people out of 100 or so uh, see that happening here. So the majority of spinal surgeons do not use such an evaluation. Economic influences can affect uh, the outcomes of surgical procedures. So patients involved in litigation, patients involved in work workers' compensation claims, uh, personal injury claims, uh, you know, not all of them have an ulterior motive, but some of them do. And how do you know which ones do and which ones don't? It's very challenging. It's one of the, the, the major things that's uh, uh, affecting uh, many states across the country. It's affecting insurance companies. It's affecting, um, uh, you know, state budgets. And they really don't have a clear answer to this because, again, without proper perioperative screening, uh, people don't know who to legitimize and who not to legitimize. And so as such, we're going to see more... Uh, failed outcomes in those patients because some of those patients do, in fact, have an agenda, unfortunately. Um, so multiple studies have demonstrated that the patients receiving workers' compensation respond poorly to spine surgeries compared to patients not on workers' compensation. And it's not because, you know, all patients are faking it, and it's not because all surgeons are doing surgery, you know, that isn't needed. It's a combination of all those different factors. It's also a combination of perhaps maybe diagnosis, maybe Maybe some of the tools for diagnosis weren't available because the work comp insurance company didn't allow it. I have a case right now, just, it just settled actually, uh, but it had been going on for about four years. A young, uh, young male uh, working at a uh, very well-known international uh, retailer uh, was hurt when a bunch of boxes fell on him, uh, hurt his back, 
And uh, uh, what was interesting is they did an MRI. The MRI actually showed virtually no changes, uh, yet um, uh, the orthopedic group was able to somehow get fusion surgery approved. And they did fusion surgery. And these guys are notorious for, for, for doing this kind of stuff. Uh, so what do you think happened? <laughs> what do you think happened? Well, his usual pain got worse. And now he had a bunch of rods and screws that he didn't need. And now he was truly not able to go back to work. Um, I mean, he just, his whole, everything changed. His psyche changed. His appearance changed. He put on like 60 pounds. Uh, I mean, it was just horrible. His muscle mass completely went away. He was just, it, it wasn't a good thing. Um, anyway, long story short, we're finally able, so it was kind of interesting. Now that he's settled, now that we don't have this whole work comp thing in our way, and now that we can actually take care of him like we should, he's doing a lot better. Uh, but before years of his life are gone. So from 22 to 26, gone. All because um, a surgeon who was motivated by money um, put a bunch of rods and screws in this patient, adding to the whole failed back surgery syndrome you know, um, epidemic, if you will. And also adding to, these, uh, to this data, this data that, hey, it doesn't work as well in work comp patients. Well, it's not like it doesn't work as well in work comp patients. You need to have legitimate surgeons who have done a legitimate workup uh, with a legitimate patient. You're going to have the same outcomes as a non-work comp patient. So take those factors into play and make sure that, the patient, that you don't change your protocols, whether they're work comp or not. They still have to have the same workup, the same um, uh, processes and procedures that you would with any other patient. So... The recurrence of back pain, uh, they're perioperative, obviously perioperative factors that uh, play a role, and that can be multifactorial. So it's important that perioperatively and postoperatively, we, we look at those um, situations individually. So we assess, you know, uh, where is this pain coming from? Is it different? Has it changed? Is it in the same, you know, topographical area as before? Is the patient describing it as different or the same, or, or you know, what, what has changed? Is the intensity higher? Is it lower? So a lot of times, you know, you'll do your history, you'll do your physical examination, and you'll find that maybe there's increased stiffness, maybe increased inflammation. Uh, maybe they were able to do something before surgery, and now they're not able to do something. Uh, maybe now it's going down the leg before it wasn't, or vice versa. All those things are important. You know, if you don't address those and you don't tackle them head-on uh, aggressively, you're going to end up with new problems. So anytime you have this, this inflammation and this increased pain, you see a domino effect, right? Not only that area that gets affected, but the whole patient as a whole right, isn't doing as much. They're not as active. There's more atrophy. You'll see other areas above and below the level of surgery atrophying at a, at a far um, accelerated rate. You see more degeneration at an accelerated rate. Uh, you see other problems popping up, such as SI joint disorder. Um, SI joint disorder is, is, is not uncommon in about a third of of uh, uh, post-fusion patients will develop SI joint pain. Uh, and, and diagnosing SI joint, uh, which we'll get into in just a, a little bit, is not as simple as just doing an SI joint injection. You also see other degenerative changes, such as facet arthropathy, which may actually have happened before surgery. We see a lot of patients with facet pain that goes undiagnosed, and you know, they've got degeneration on their MRI, and they end up with, a, with some type of a surgery, some type of a fusion. All along, they had facet pain, something super simple. They had arthritis of their back. And, uh, you know, they had it before, but, but also afterwards. You're going to develop potentially even more arthritic changes because everything, if it's fused, especially if it's fused, those joints have nowhere to go. They don't have a way of releasing. So they end up rubbing on each other. They end up, you know, getting more inflamed and more irritated. 
new onset of foraminal stenosis, new disc degeneration, different uh, disc herniations. You can develop disc herniations after surgery. It's a big misnomer. Some people think, oh, once you've had a fusion, all the disc material is out. That's actually not true. So you can have disc herniations in the same area of the fusion surgery. Um, uh, so so keep, an, keep an eye out for that. And then epidural adhesions, uh, which is scar tissue around the epidural space, around the foraminal space, which can occur. All right, great. So, so now that you know, you're, 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 you, you know everything about um, uh, what to do perioperatively or what to look for, how do you diagnose if you have failed back surgery syndrome? Where, again, a lot of these tools should be used beforehand, but, uh, but the patient's already had surgery. So, so they come to your door, what do you do? Obviously, history and physical, always important. Won't necessarily tell you everything, but, uh, but a proper history and physical, there's no substitution for that. Look at the patient's pre-surgical information. Again, find out if, if a proper diagnosis was made beforehand. You'll be surprised, right? In the studies, they said, what, up to almost 60% of the time, a proper diagnosis was not made before surgery. So you will be shocked. You will find that half of those patients, the proper diagnosis has not been made. Long-standing pain after surgery uh, can occur in the acute phase, but it's difficult to assess. You know, they're going to come to you in the acute phase, and everything's going to be sore. Everything's going to be irritated. And it's pretty hard to you know, sort of know where it's coming from. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when a firefighter goes into a house that's on fire, everything's on fire, everything's smoky. You can't really tell where the fire is coming from. Uh, eventually, after a few months, usually after about three months or so, uh, the, the acute pain starts dying down, and then we start seeing the chronic pain really rearing its ugly head. Much easier to find out what the diagnosis is at that point. <clears throat> when, you, when you think you have uh, a certain problem, then you order certain tests to try to... Um, credit or discredit that problem. So for example, you know, a lot of times people say, okay, maybe it's facet pain. But, but unfortunately right now for facet pain, you know, on physical examination, all you have is paraspinal tenderness that, that really you know, associates with facet pain and maybe uh, facet loading or, or, or lumbar extension that can you know, associate with facet pain. But that doesn't tell you that it's facet pain for sure. You can have myofascial pain that can produce the same type of symptoms. So that might be a situation where you might need to do something like a facet medial branch block. Discogenic pain can exist also. You can have radicular pain as well as non-radicular pain with discogenic pain. Uh, there are ways to diagnose disc pain. There's something called a discogram, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but again, you, you know, there, are, um, there are various interventional and non-interventional tools that you need to know of that uh, you need to use if uh, patients uh, present to you with, with failed back surgery syndrome. So imaging is important for, uh, for all cases, before surgery and after surgery, when patient presents to you with, uh, with failed back surgery syndrome. First thing you might order is an x-ray. X-rays are a, first, a good first step. You can get flexion extension imaging. You can show where the limitations are. Uh, you can see what, you know, for example, if hardware has been put in, you can see if the hardware uh, has been put in correctly. Uh, something that we've seen, not, not once or twice, but actually, you know, a few times, uh, are hardware that, that hasn't been put in correctly. For example, actually, uh, so this is crazy, right? This same patient, uh, that 22-year-old who had surgery, uh, <laughs> he actually ended up having two surgeries. So the first one, this, the, 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 the screw was placed... Um, abutting the S1 nerve root. Now, how in the world someone does that after doing, you know, 20,000 fusion surgeries or whatever this guy's done, 
I have no idea. I can only think that there was maybe he was in a rush to play golf. Or, I don't know. You know, I don't, didn't ask him. But, I mean, you know, that occurs. We've seen screws break, okay? So that is something that absolutely can occur. And it sort of gives you, it's, it's really humbling when you see that because it gives you a sense of how incredibly strong our spines are. That there's so much force that you can break a titanium screw. You know, kind of crazy, right? Um, so, so x-rays are good. You know, they help you sort of pre, pre, uh, give you a preliminary assessment on what's going on with the patient. Beyond that, though, MRIs still are gold standard. They tell you a lot about soft tissue, because really that's what we're looking at here for the most part. At the end of the day, broken screws and screws that are put in abutting the S1 nerve root, that's not what's commonly occurring. At the end of the day, what is commonly occurring are soft tissue changes, scar tissue, you know, stenosis, foraminal stenosis, disc herniations, you know, those kind of things. So the MRIs are still the gold standard when, they, when we want to look at structure at a, at, a, at, a, at a good detail, especially soft tissue. CT as well, but uh, CT is limited because especially if you have, image, if you have uh, hardware in there, you can see a lot of artifact. And uh, CTs have a lot of radiation. Guys, please uh, don't order CTs like water. Uh, you can have, you know, depending on the CT you order, it has about 200 times the radiation of an x-ray. So I don't know, is everyone familiar with that or not? You know, a few people. Uh, you know, I had, a, I had a, this is just literally last week, so a patient with failed back surgery syndrome, the surgeon is ordering an SI joint injection to be done by interventional radiology. Now, why is that? I have no clue, because the interventional radiologist is not a pain guy, never been trained to really do a proper SI joint injection, and as we'll see, SI joint injections inherently have a 66% failure rate, so why in the world you would order that from someone who's not an interventional pain physician is mind-boggling, but beyond that, the interventional radiologist is going to do that injection under CT guidance. So he's going to spend 10, 15 minutes doing a procedure, giving the patient, I don't know, somewhere between 100 to 500 times the dose of an x-ray just to get a stupid needle into a spot that has a 66% failure rate. So, so if you're not going to hurt the patient with your surgery, you're going to hurt them because you're going to give them cancer now because you're ordering so many flipping CT scans. Um, and, and potentially increasing the risk of, of cancer, right? So please, please, please be mindful of how many CT scans you order. Uh, they are not benign at all. Um, so just keep that in mind. Discography can also be used. Discography is when you put needles into a disc to pressurize the disc as well as put contrast dye in a disc to see how the dye spreads and to see at what pressures the, the dye starts entering at what pressures the dye starts spreading into the disc. If done correctly, discography can be incredibly useful to helping us figure out which discs are painful as well as which discs um, have some aberrant flow of, of fluid. Now, discography, unfortunately, is not done correctly in many situations, which is why discography has become a little more controversial. Uh, reimbursements are a little tougher. You know, you have, um, you have people who just, you know, this is a, a completely an operator-dependent procedure. If, if, you're not, if it's not done correctly, you're going to get data that's not accurate. Uh, but if, it, if it's done correctly, the, the data is very accurate. And what you see right here is actually an image from a discography. So you can see at L3, L4, it's a normal uh, discogram. L4, L5 is a normal discogram. You can see at L5, S1, it's not a normal discogram. Uh, the, the spread of the dye, uh, you can see, you know, is not the same as the other two. You don't see that bilobed spread. 
Uh, in addition to that, concurrently, the patient reported, which, which you may or may not be able to see from the back there, but the patient reported 8 out of 10 uh, pain that was consistent with his usual pain, uh, whereas with the other levels, he did not. He reported 0 out of 10 at the L3, L4, and a 3 out of 10 at the L4, L5. So using those two things, we're able to isolate out that it's the L5-S1 disc that's causing the problem, not the L4, L5, or L3, L4, regardless of what the MRI showed. Even if the MRI showed there was a herniation at L4, L5, that wasn't where the pain, it's not a painful area. Now, I guarantee you that at least 50% of you, if not more, have some type of disc bulge, disc herniation. Because after the age of 30, that's what the data shows. Management of uh, failback surgery syndrome uh, can be complicated, but again, it's a multimodal approach. Okay? First of all, you're going to use conservative options, minimally invasive options. Surgery is absolutely the last choice. And you're going to consider surgery when you're basically between a rock and a hard place. You know? And uh, you know, maybe the patient's reporting that they're having bowel and bladder problems. Maybe they're having you know, significant weakness, those kind of things. Uh, but when you do it just for pain, the outcome data doesn't, does not look good for the repeated you know, surgeries, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, take a, use careful consideration to what kind of therapy you use, because it's going to make a difference, right? If you use the wrong therapy at the wrong time, so timing is very important, you, you may not help the patient. And in fact, uh, you may actually get the patient, uh, the patient may be worse. So for example, physical therapy. A lot of times, you know, we'll say, hey, let's do physical therapy right from the get-go. But if the patient has severe inflammation and uh, a severe pain, Sometimes physical therapy can actually amp up that pain. It makes the problem even worse. And, and now you've made it, you know, whereas the patient was having a lot of pain, but they could still get out of bed, now they're having a tough time getting out of bed. So timing is very important. In those situations, you may actually be better off, you know, maybe using a medication first or an anti-inflammatory first or even an uh, interventional pain procedure maybe, uh, using that before your physical therapy. So, so timing is important, and every patient is a little different. So some of, that some of those conservative options include things like physical therapy, medication management, psychotherapy. Again, I, you never discount the fact that anxiety, depression, and central pain may be playing a role. Stress reduction. Surgery is stressful, but the months and years that led up to before surgery, I'm sure the patient had a lot of stress and anxiety as well. Manage that. It's very important. Cognitive behavioral therapy uh, is important. Changing you know, behavioral modification is important. Habits are important. Diet, exercise, things like acupuncture, even meditation, all of those things are important, and, and they shouldn't be discounted as, as you know, alternative or holistic or whatever. Uh, these are all important things, and this is about treating the patient as a whole unit. When you look at pharmacological options, uh, there are obviously multiple options. You have the anti-epileptic options, which help with nerve pain, uh, the anti-steroidal, uh, anti the non anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs, um, obviously to reduce inflammation. And there are a bunch of different NSAIDs that are out there. They are not all the same, folks. Different molecules uh, within the NSAID category have far different properties, both from a safety and efficacy standpoint. And there are multiple different technologies out there to make the molecules more effective and safer. So, um, so I, it behooves you to, to pay uh, a little attention to what ex actually you're prescribing. Oral steroids, obviously risk benefit, uh, but, but those are available. Antidepressants, again, there's some risk benefit issues there, but, uh, but, but that's part of the protocol. Uh, muscle relaxants can be important, especially when you have a lot of muscle cramping. Remember, when you have more muscle cramping, less blood flow, less blood flow, uh, more lactic acid buildup, uh, more um, um, uh, inflammatory mediators, thus 
perpetuating the cycle. And then obviously opioids are an option. Again, risk-benefit issues with that as well. Diagnostic procedures, the various nerve blocks can be done to diagnose where you think the problem is, is occurring. And uh, if, if, if diagnostic blocks are done, please make sure they're done correctly because the data that you receive from those dictates where you go. So, for, ex for example, if you do a nerve block on this area and it fails, you're going to assume that that's not the area. But if it wasn't done correctly and that was the area, now you're completely ignoring the real diagnosis and maybe focusing on something that, um, that it's not. So make sure that those are done correctly. When they're done correctly, diagnostic nerve blocks are really like light switches. Okay? They should turn it on and off. Selective nerve root blocks are when we selective block a nerve root. Uh, again, when done correctly, you should see at least temporary pain resolution if that nerve root is, in fact, affected. Uh, there are studies out there show that when a properly done selective nerve root block is used, that it can be diagnostically more predictive than even an EMG. Sacroiliac joint injections, there is a high false negative rate. Okay, some have described that to be up to 66%. Others have described that to be about 33%. I don't know, somewhere in between. Point is, is that the, the, the SI joint is like the Grand Canyon, okay? There are a bunch, it is long and tortuous, it's deep, there are a bunch of grooves and kinks. To get medication to flow throughout that entire joint is really hard. It doesn't happen all the time. And so that is why a lot of these SI joint injections fail. So what should be used is something called a medial, medial and lateral branch block, where you're specifically blocking the innervation to the SI joint. So you never have to even worry about the joint and the crevices and, and all that stuff that's in there. You're blocking all the innervation as a diagnostic tool to find out if the SI joint is causing uh, uh, problems. And all that can be done under fluoroscopy. It, it should never be done under CT guidance, okay? It's just way too much radiation. It's just wrong. Uh, facet joint blocks that are intra-articular and um, medial branch blocks. The medial branch blocks are preferred because they tend to be more diagnostically predictive and they set you up for radiofrequency ablation. The intra-articular ones are not preferred because, again, you run into the same whole failed block syndrome, uh, but also you can destroy the joint capsules by going after the, uh, the joint itself. So medial branch blocks are preferred. So epidural steroid injections, you've all heard of those. those there's intralaminar and um, translaminar, uh, uh, transferaminal, excuse me, and uh, caudal, okay? So the intralaminar are down the middle. That's what most people traditionally know uh, when they think of epidurals. There's transferaminal, where you're going through the neuroforamen from the side. And there's caudal, where you're going through the, you know, the tailbone, effectively the tailbone. But it's really the sacral, um, uh, a sacral foramen. The, the caudal injections can be used to break up adhesions, okay, as we'll see in, um, in, in a picture coming up. Uh, epidural steroid injections can be used, uh, the translaminar can be used uh, in some cases. After fusion surgery, in many cases, you've lost the epidural space because the surgeon has gone through that area and violated that space. The epidural space is a potential space between two separate tissues. When you've, when you've surgically operated, those tissues no longer exist. That space no longer exists, so you can't do a translaminar. And even if you can, if you have scar tissue in the affected area, where do you think the medication is going to go? It's going to go to the pathway of least resistance, not most resistance, which is where you want it to go. So that's where the transferaminal route comes in, where you're uh, effectively you know, targeting the neuroforamen that's affected, and you know that the medication is going to go there because you're forcing it to go in that area. So we've seen in, in various studies that have supported the use of transferaminal as opposed to other 
options when it comes to epidural steroid injection, uh, we've seen you know, a greater amount of efficacy. One study said about 43% of patients had at least 50% pain relief after the transpyramidal epidural steroid injection. Now, sometimes they don't last very long. And if they don't, obviously there's other options. But one thing is for sure, we want to make sure our diagnosis is, is solid. So if we're able to elicit you know, very substantial pain relief and we know that that's the problem, at least we know where we need to focus on. So SI joint injections, again, we talked about the fact that uh, SI joint injections in the joint itself have a high failure rate. Um, that's why you know, using a medial and lateral branch block approach is a more effective uh, way of of getting your diagnosis. And it also, again, sets you up for radiofrequency ablation where the joint block doesn't. So facet blocks, you know, we just talked about the medial branch block and the uh, intraarticular block. This is a sample of, the, of what the medial branch nerve looks like. It sort of traverses here, and when you put a needle in, you're trying to get it right at that, at that spot here so you can uh, uh, numb it up. Uh, using the caudal approach, we can do a lysis of adhesions. So that can be done through a catheter. The catheter is introduced through the uh, caudal uh, uh, approach and threaded up as far as it can go, but typically it goes up to the L5-S1 space. After that, sometimes you can't thread it any farther, again, because of scar tissue, because the epidural space doesn't exist anymore uh, in its entirety. So using, uh, using medication, using fluid, using liquid, you try to break up some of that scar tissue. Uh, about 20 to 36% of failed back surgery syndrome cases are attributed to adhesions in the epidural space. So this is one route that we have. It's, uh, it's not the best route, uh, but it's one of the only routes we have for breaking up adhesions. Radiofrequency ablation is also available. It's a way of, of uh, you know, some people call it zapping, blocking, burning, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's a temporary solution. It's a way of reducing the, the nerve's ability to transmit pain signals, sort of blocking the nerve pain transmission. Typically lasts maybe about six months to a year. Um, the nerves reco recover. They regenerate. They, uh, the, the, the area in which you have uh, lysed or the area in which you have performed the, the ablation uh, heals. And that's why the pain returns. If it returns, you, you can do it again. Uh, most insurances have a six-month gap between where they'll approve RF. Uh, so if it's greater than six months, you should be fine. And we've had patients who have, you know, had to have radiofrequency ablations 10, 15 years, and they're doing fine. It's a great management tool, no additional complications. Uh, and we're not seeing any of these sort of failed back surgery syndrome issues with radiofrequency ablation because it's not a surgery. It's all done with needles. Neurostimulation, which um, I'm sure many of you have heard about, has been around for many years. It's actually been around for, for about 50 years, believe it or not. Uh, and, um, and now we have multiple different ways of stimulating, so multiple different technologies. Essentially, for, for those of you who are not familiar with neurostimulation, it's a way of putting electrical lead into the epidural space to override painful signals with non-painful signals. Uh, I won't get into the details about the physics on how that's done, but there are many different ways to alter voltage as well as current and to use different frequencies to be able to you know, override those painful signals. With some of the newer technologies, which include things like burst technology and high-frequency stimulation, uh, dorsal root ganglion stimulation and peripheral nerve field stimulation, uh, we're able to offer pain relief in, in, in so many different areas. It's not, all, it's not all just back pain now. We can get peripheral pain. We can get leg pain. We can get everything. So... Um, um, 
I won't get into the details of neurostimulation. That's, that's a whole conversation in itself. But that's also an option that's used before surgery. It's also an option that's used after surgery for failed back surgery syndrome. They've seen that the cost of neurostimulation, uh, it's more cost-effective than surgery and some of this, the data that's been out there. Uh, obviously, a much lower morbidity and mortality rate with neurostimulation versus surgical intervention and uh, fusion surgery. If patients have motor weakness, motor loss, bladder, bowel loss, uh, uh, neurostimulation is not the option in those situations. Neurostimulation is really going to help with the pain. It's not going to help with, you know, uh, uh, true nerve strangulation. And if those exist, um, um, in many situations, surgery may be the only option that's uh, available. A lot of references. I can send them to you if you, if you wish uh, afterwards. But with that, I'll open up to questions. Thank you. Thank you. So, so the question is, is uh, um, the risk of developing neuromas or increased pain after radiofrequency, uh, it can occur. It can absolutely occur. I haven't seen it uh, at all, actually. I don't think I've seen it at all, uh, but it can occur. Um, uh, I would say that the rates, I mean, the rates have got to be pretty small. I mean, definitely less than 1%. You know, I've probably, I've done thousands of RFAs and I haven't seen it. Just on my data, it would be less, but it would probably be less than 1%. So the question is, when the, when the pain returns, how do we differentiate it? Um, in many situations, the patients will just tell us, hey, it's the same pain that's returned. If, um, if the patient's like, well, you know, I think it's the same, or maybe it is, maybe it's not, um, we may repeat radiofrequency ablation. We may actually end up doing a diagnostic block again, right, before doing the radiofrequency. We may just say, well, we're not sure. Let's do a diagnostic. Let's find out if it's the same pain. And if it's not, then we might forego the radiofrequency ablation and then try to figure out where this new pain is coming from. Yep. Uh, so steroid versus no steroid epidural steroid injection? Or? Uh, so, so for, um, for, yeah, I know, I, I know what studies you're talking about. Um, <laughs> Let's just say there are a lot of people who want to discount interventional options, okay? So when you, you, you want to break everything down into the components, right? Let's, let's look at logically. Doing an injection with saline, it, it shouldn't do anything except for increase that space, right? And, and if there are adhesions or if there's, you know, sort of compression, it may actually, you know, spread that out. And sometimes that might be all you need. Um, lidocaine, bupivacaine, again, numbing it up. Um, to, to, and sometimes that's all you need. So we, we've seen even with, like, let's take a me, medial branch block, and you just numb up the medial branch nerve, right? It's, it's amazing. Sometimes people will get months of relief, even though that medication has effectively been out of the system within 24 hours. So why is that? You know, in, in that case, maybe because you broke that cycle of pain. Um, steroids, how do they work? They're potent anti-inflammatory medications. So if someone has a significant amount of inflammation, it will reduce that inflammation. So I, I, 
I think there are probably people who do benefit from just numbing, right, just numbing that area up or putting saline in. But I don't think that's necessarily a substitute for an anti-inflammatory medication. So, of course, you're going to find situations where they may benefit from both, not because it's a placebo, because it's not a placebo. In both situations, you're doing something. A true placebo would be just putting a needle in and coming out. Right, right but you, st- you steroid or not, you steroid. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, so, we, so I've done both. Like, for diagnostic purposes, we'll do a selective nerve root block, you know, specifically using bupivacaine. And, and, and we've seen patients like, oh, man, I felt great for a day, and they came back. So, so you know, I would say in my own data, I have data showing that when we use steroid, it lasted significantly longer than when we didn't. Here's the other issue. So let's, say, let's, let's just say they're the same thing, right, or, or, or they might be the same thing. Well, what if they're not? Now, from the insurance company standpoint, they're like, well, we already paid for one. We're not going to pay for another one. And you can say, well, I didn't use steroid there. They say, I don't care. We already paid for one. You know, we're not going to. So, so I think that's the, the, the other issue is, you know, we know we have limited opportunities to do this because we're limited by insurance. Um, do we put something in there that we know works or leave it out because there's a chance that we don't need it? And, and ultimately, I think that will be what, what dictates it. But, but no, I, I think in some patients, you know, just physically numbing that nerve up, physically putting a high amount of volume in there, sort of the, the same you know, concept of adhesiolysis, where you're breaking up scar tissue. Uh, same concept, you know, just putting a lot of fluid in there with numbing medication may break apart some of those adhesions and give you some pain relief. But from an insurance standpoint, I don't think we have the luxury of doing a little of this and doing a little of that. They say we've already paid enough, you know, so... Yeah. And they, the thing I hear a lot, no more needles, no more shots, which I interpret, give me my opiate. So we can't really treat failed back surgery without, I don't hear an interventionist, I assume. So from a frontline standpoint, mm-hmm. or from your standpoint, how do you deal with the guy who says, no more needles, I'm done? What's your I, I, we, we see those. We see those as well. And, and, you know, some of those patients are on opioid medications. And this is where I said, you know, there's, there's risk and benefit. And, and this is why I even put it in here. Even though it's probably not the sexiest thing and most popular thing to do anymore. You know, a few years ago, um, you know, that's, that's all people were using is opiates because they didn't know any better. And now it's like, it's kind of amazing, right? Everyone's like, oh, no, 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 never use it again, right? We have hospital systems in the area who forbid their, their, their uh, uh, physicians from writing for any opioids, even in the ER. It's like... Uh, my hand is broken and it's hanging backward. Ah, here's an Advil. I mean, it's, it's psychotic, you know? So it's evil. Uh, you know, treat the patients appropriately. Treat them safely. Um, and some of those patients here are going to need opioid medications. But the question becomes then, and this is where this is the whole opioid issue and what it's come to, is how many of those patients are going to inherently develop, you know, an addict, addictive behavior um, we don't know always who those patients are going to be. Obviously, they're screening tools, but they don't, you know, they don't screen for everyone. Uh, some of it's genetic, as we know, right? Addiction is a genetic problem. How do you know you're not going to trigger something? And you might. Um, I do. I do. I, I do, and I'm very blunt, and I say, look, I'm not going to. I'm not here to, you know, rape the system. I'm not here to take advantage of you. I'm not here to do 40 procedures like that other schmuck did. 
Uh, and I'll say, well, the, the 40 he did obviously didn't work. Now the question is, is, did it not work because your problem is really bad? Or did it not work because that doctor doesn't work? Right? Or also, you have a different back now than you did before. You don't have the same back. So even if that was the awesomest doctor in the world, you have a different spine now. You know, and, and, and I'll, I'll tell people that. And, and um, In fact, I just had this conversation about two weeks ago with, with someone. He's like, I had 40 procedures. He's like, none of it works. I don't believe in this interventional you know, BS. And I said, well, what, what you don't believe in is the guy who did those. I said, he, he had a facet problem. He had a lumbar facet problem. And, and the, and the freaking interventionalist, the last procedure he did was a T9 epidural for L3 to S1 facet pain. So if you know, any, you know, if you know about interventional stuff, that's just idiotic, right? So, so I, I gave him an example. I said, I, said, um, I said, are all basketball players the same? I said, they're not. So neither are all doctors. I said, give, so I'll tell him. I said, give me one chance. If it doesn't work, you know, fine. But, but also, you know, fine, kind of, sort of fine, right? Like sometimes you know that there is a specific problem. And when they say it doesn't work, then you've got to say, okay, is our problem really bad? If you know that something has been done perfectly and, it's, and your block was exact, you know, so I'll know in my mind if, if, if it was done correctly. And if I know that it's done correctly and the patient comes back like, no, man, I didn't get any relief or whatever, then I'm either going to be thinking that the problem's really bad or he's full of it, right? Uh, you know, I mean, if, I, you know, if you turn off a light switch and someone's still saying the room is too bright, there's, there's something, something going on, right? So... So, you know, are you an interventionalist or? No, frontline. Okay. It's fine. So find an interventionalist who you absolutely trust. I know. Well, you know, and that's the thing, right? So, like, I'll, I'll spend five, ten extra minutes if I have to in the room to get that needle in the right spot. So what does that mean? That means I lost another procedure. But I know if my thing's done correctly. I mean, you've got to find someone like that. And then there are not that many people like that. And that's why, unfortunately, our specialty is getting knocked on the interventional stuff, and that's why, like, the gentleman, yeah, you said it, right? Or no, did you? No. So, or did you ask that question about epidural? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so, 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 you know, that's why we'll see some of these things saying, oh, epidurals don't work, they're experimental. It's because there's so much bad data out there because you had a, you had a lot of bad, you know, pain docs doing it. Not even pain docs, I mean, you have family practice, you have radiology, you have all these people doing these procedures. All of this is not done in a, in a vacuum. Insurance companies keep data on all of this information and they see what the efficacy is and that's where some of this data comes from. And then they'll say, oh, there's a 20% efficacy rate. Well, that's because 80% weren't done correctly. But nobody ever pays attention to that. You know, there were, in, a couple of years ago I gave a lecture at Pain Week and we looked at data um, over the last decade. I, and I forgot what the statistics were, but I think it was a 1,000% increase in family practitioners doing epidural steroid injections. Like, I mean, come on, that shouldn't, you know, that's not, that shouldn't be done, right? Um, and, and these are all supposed to be done under fluoroscopy. So those, none of those were. Those were all done at bedside. That means, you know. So, so you know, you're going to see garbage data in, garbage data out, blah, blah, blah. But find someone who's, who's going to say, listen, look, you know, in behind closed doors, they'll tell you, look, I promise you it's going to be done correctly. Because it's, it's diagnostic, diagnostic, diagnostic. And, Yeah, so, so, well, and, and so, you know, you, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, I know, it's a system problem, it's a system-wide problem. Yeah, it won't, it won't, it won't happen, you know, 
So you know why? Because a lot of the, all of these guys, so I'm solo. See, that's why I can do, you know, I can, I can spend, if I want to spend 15 minutes extra, I will. And only one I have to answer to is, is um, you know, the college tuition guys will say you don't have enough money coming in because, you know, you're spending too long with patients or something. But, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, physicians uh, who work for big groups or big hospitals or whatever, they have quotas. And it's like, look, man, you, get, you, you got 15 minutes to do this procedure. You know, you got to do so much RVU and so much, you know, um, it's a system problem. I don't have a fix to that system problem. It's up for, you know, just get to know someone and, and just get to know if they're honest people or not. And after that, you know, find their training. You know, I always say find, you know, find someone who's been awesome, not just today, but someone who's proven themselves from their youth. You know, someone who's gone out of their way to help people and done things from their youth. And that gives you a sense of their character. And that's probably the best way you're going to find your best interventionalist is find out who, what their character is like. You know, are they actually trying to do the right thing? Same thing with surgeons, too, right? We do, we do. Um, I, I found that most surgeons say, oh, that's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I had one neurologist said, Yeah, none of this in my feet. He said, Oh, it's idiopathic. 15 minute nerve conduction study. And it uh, turned out I had carpal tunnel syndrome. Mm-hmm. The guy that did it correctly just took an hour and a half to do the yep. nerve conduction study. Hit it right on, you know. And, uh, you know, but you can't do a nerve conduction study in 15 minutes. Yeah. 100% agree with you. So we'll, I'll order EMGs when I don't know what's going on, when I truly don't know what's going on. Um, and, uh, but, but I'll have a, you know, I, t- I order them with a grain of salt. Uh, I know that um, they're, they're completely operator dependent, as you know. And, um, and you know, you order an EMG. We've, ha- we've had the same thing, you know, two different EMGs saying two completely different things. And, you're, and then what direction do you go? Um, in, in many situations, though, with, with you know, and again, I see the, the advantage I have is I'm the one doing the procedure. I know if I've done the procedure correctly or not. I know if I hit the spot. Um, uh, so when I get confusing data, you know, there's three reasons why like a, an injection or a procedure won't work. E- either it wasn't done correctly, problem's really bad, or something else is going on. So I know number one, if, if I know number one's not there, then I know the problem's really bad or something else is going on. And if I can't differentiate between those two, that's when or the EMG. Uh, but yeah, we run into surgeons, same thing, you know, they'll say, well, I can see everything on an MRI, and then it's not true. An MRI just shows you what it looks like, but it doesn't show you where the pain is coming from. Uh, no, and, and actually, even the EMG doesn't show you where the pain is coming from. EMG shows you where you have nerve dysfunction, which still doesn't tell you where the pain is coming from. So, uh, so yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we order them sparingly when necessary, but we do it with a grain of salt. S1 through, so we'll get, um, we'll get branches of uh, L4 and L5. Uh, we'll get S1 medial and then S1 lateral and S2 and S3. Those are, those are typically the main ones. So it, it's debatable, actually. So people have said anywhere from L4 to S4. Say it's L5 through S3. So, so there's a little debate of how many you have to get. 
I think if you got L4 to S4, you're not necessarily doing a disservice. You're just spending more time. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing wrong, obviously, with that. Uh, but definitely, I would say definitely you have to hit uh, L5, S1 medial, S1 lateral, and S2, S3. I think you've you got to get those. S2, S3. Well, those are lateral at that point. So, yeah, so you have the lateral branches off the S1, S2, S3 um, sacral foramen, and then you have the medial branches of the S1 at the L5, S1 sacral ala, and then, and then L5. So, so effectively, you know, um, some people will say it's a facet block of L4, L5, facet block of L5, S1, and then the S1, S2, S3 lateral. Does that make sense? Uh, so, who knows? I mean, you know, yeah, we've had patients who have had discogenic pain. We have a patient right now who, um, who, who we're treating with uh, very, so we don't have a lot of discogenic pain patients that we treat with epidurals. We have one right now, actually, that um, has gotten pretty good relief with epidural steroid injections for his discogenic pain. Um, is it helping the disc directly? Is it helping? I mean, who knows? But he's, he's getting relief. And, um, and that's all that matters because the next step, and we've told him, the next step is, you know, potentially surgical intervention. So he's like, look, as long as this is working, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it. So I'm not really sure if it's helping the, the disc or if it's hel- or, or maybe there is this uh, what I call incomplete radiculopathy, you know, which is severe nerve root pain, but it doesn't go down your leg. It just sits in your back. Um, you know, who knows? Uh, but it's helping, so, you know. Um, let me let me get him real quick. In your opinion, Jeff, you have the tool of the nerve block. My question is, does anything tell you the, the type of pain short of hitting the proper block and getting relief? Pretend you don't have it. It's just yeah. somebody, it's me. Yeah, yeah. My back is killing me. Yep. Maybe, um, I think it's maybe physical and a nerve block. What else does he have to, yeah. to Well, it's, yeah, so, so there, there are a lot, well, you know, if you want to look at it from an academic standpoint, you know, where, where you're like, from an, no, no, maybe from an academic standpoint, what I mean by that is uh, uh, I want scientific proof that this is what's hurting. Um, you know, I, I don't know any other way than physically turning off that, that switch. A nerve is just an electrical wire. That's all it is. So, so to me, doing a block is like turning off the fuse box, I mean, or turning off the light switch. I, I don't know of anything that's more scientific than that. That being said, you know, I mean, you know, I have chiropractors, physical therapists, you know, whatnot, massage therapists, even acupuncturists saying, I know this is SI joint pain, I'll do my little thing, and they feel great afterwards. Uh, but, you know, if, if I said to them, I want scientific proof that it was SI joint pain, they can't give it to me. They'll just say, well, I did a bunch of stuff and it helped. So, um, so it's not like, you know, you necessarily have to block everything. I mean, in many cases, again, if they can do better with just, you know, simple uh, conservative options, great. But if you want to have rock-solid, irrefutable data, I don't know how else you can get that than physically turning that switch off, you know? Right. Thanks. Did you do the 
Um, yeah, so, so sometimes, not always. Yeah, sometimes. So we've, we, uh, we've had this happen, actually, just a, a handful of times. Uh, but I warn all my patients, when you do bilateral SI, you know, medial and lateral branch blocks, you're getting S3, S4. Uh, and, uh, and we've had a couple of patients where it knocked out S3, S4 temporarily. And so they had diarrhea, or they had more than that, incontinence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was all because of, uh, it, it wasn't because it was a spine. You were far from the spine. It was because S3, S4, as you know, innervates the rectal sphincter. So they just had rectal sphincter relaxation and, you know, stuff came up. No, 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 no. So it was, it, it was because it's a fluid. Uh, so the fluid spreads, right? So, so it's not that, uh, you're, you're not getting in the foramen. You're getting outside of the neuroforamen. But, you know, we're putting, say, you know, whatever volume, and, and that volume spreads. And if it spreads just right, it starts knocking out the nerve root, and then you start getting, you know, the motor issues, right? So, so with radio frequency, you're, you're, you're zapping a very pinpoint area, so you're not going to see the spread from the radio frequency. But liquid, you'll see the liquid spread. That's why you numb out the, you're, you're knocking out the nerve root temporarily, and that's why you're seeing the, uh, the rectal incontinence. So that's happened, uh, I think, twice, two or three times out of, again, more than like a thousand. So it's rare, but, but I, I do warn most patients because that is a pretty freaky thing when, you know. Yeah, it depends on where. So ultrasounds, you know, uh, I think if you're doing ultrasound in, in, a, in a sort of more superficial area, you know, shoulder, knee, you know, whatever, elbow, finger, foot, um, I'm okay with that. Uh, ultrasound for spinal injections, I, I'm not okay with. Uh, and uh, I, it doesn't penetrate deep enough. It doesn't have the accuracy. It doesn't, I can't see the flow as well. Um, uh, you know, perhaps I'm more old school, even though I'm kind of young, maybe I'm still more old school. But, I mean, you know, fluoroscopy, I can get live. I mean, it shows me a tremendous amount of detail. And ultrasound, as we know, the, the detail is simply not there. And the penetration is, is not there on, uh, for the spine. So I, I would stick with fluoro for the spine still. Oh, man. You know, honestly, you know. I mean, I, there's some advantages, right? So, like, you know, theoretically, you can, you can see the vessels better. You can see if you're, if you're contacting the vessels better. But, um, but still, I, 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 it, I would actually say, especially for cervical, I mean, I want to have, I have a, you know, as fancy of tools as possible but still maintain safety. You know, cervical is something that should be treated with, with a great amount of care. I mean, that's where, that's where the stuff really can happen. Um, so I, I wouldn't do it. And I could say truly, and, you know, um, and we've done many cervical procedures and haven't run into issues simply because of, of how, you know, closely we can monitor the patients with, with fluoroscopy and, you know, use contrast eye. We can see the spread really well. Um, so, yeah, you can argue with cervical, especially for, you know, when they're thin. I mean, it's, it's really a small space. Um, I, I found it logistically more cumbersome. I mean, who's holding the device? How are you maintaining sterility? You know, I mean, it's, it's logistically much more challenging. And, uh, and, and I'm not sure if you're, if, if you're truly going to see the, advan, advan, the advantages. You know, when we've seen the catastrophic problems for cervical that have been reported in the journals, uh, everything was theoretically done correctly. You know, they had um, negative aspiration. They were in the epidural space. Contrast dye looked great. Um, I, I don't know if ultrasound would have helped in those situations either. 
You know, and, and by the way, for everyone, the catastrophic stuff, so you see with epidural steroid injections of cervical spine, catastrophic stuff, including stroke, death, all those things, because a particulate absorption is what you're talking about um, in a just a small little, you know, collateral vessel contributing to an artery that it was like, like true flukes, but, but catastrophic stuff. So, so there is danger with particulate steroids, as you were saying. Um, the danger, and when it happens, of course, we want to have zero complications out of, you know, 100 billion. We want zero complications. But uh, even particular steroids, the complication rate is still very, very low. So one of the things maybe to, to consider is in the cervical spine, if you're concerned, use non-particulate steroid, right? And that way you could potentially have the best of both worlds. You at least are giving something, but you're not running that risk. But Ultrasound, I would reserve it to the joints um, for, for me, personally, and, and I would still use fluoro for the entire spine. Um, my second question is, um, where I practice, we don't have to rupture because some pathogens that are complicated or uh, that are really complicated. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on modic changes of the MRI in correlation with uh, the pain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, that's actually been, I think that's been shown even in, in data, right, that modic changes are, um, um, do correlate with, with with either discogenic pain or pain that appears to be discogenic pain. <clears throat> uh, the treatment options are still, are still the same, right? Treatment options include, you know, surgery. Uh, one of the other treatment options, which, uh, uh, which, is, uh, uh, which we just started doing now, we've had a, a couple patients this year, we've done stem cells for discogenic pain. And so far, um, uh, well, the first one was done in January, and, and, uh, and he had relief. Even though he refused to quit smoking two packs a day, Still had relief. <laughs> and uh, the second one uh, we just did a couple weeks ago. And at least, at least we know one thing, he doesn't have more pain. <laughs> That's a good thing. It'll be, it'll be a little while before we can truly say what he has. But, um, but uh, I, you know, now I have that. I've been doing stem cells for about five years. So, um, you know, autologous stem cells, and now we're doing autologous with non-autologous stem cells. And we've been doing that for about, uh, so we've been doing stem cells for about five years. So for, as far as I'm concerned, if, if patients have any of those discogenic, which, you know, we, I didn't get into too much on this lecture. I have a stem cell lecture coming up later today. Um, I, I would absolutely do stem cells over fusion surgery for me or for my patients, right? Why wouldn't I? With or without modic changes, with or without discogenic changes. What about the um, sensory showing? I'm not sure if the, it has to be Yeah, I've... I've I've seen, I've, I've heard that. I, I haven't done that, so I can't comment on it um, much. But, uh, um, yeah, so I, who knows? I don't know. You know, there's also studies to show if you just insufflate the disc, there are patients who have had relief. There's some data, there's some uh, case studies out there. The patients who had discograms actually had therapeutic discograms. I actually did a patient who had a therapeutic discogram. Crazy, right? Because what, what happened is, you, you know, those two cc's you put in there inflated enough and... and, and so I don't know if it's methylene blue or if it's just the fluid or who knows. But, um, but the stem cell one, you know, there you're not only putting fluid in, but you're actually putting products that may, you know, offer a regenerative response. So, um, so, so I don't know. That, that, that would be my number one choice. Uh, for, if I had to have it, that would be my number one choice. Right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you coming.